Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Robert, you and I have played many a D&D game. We've talked about it on the show before. Many of the listeners are D&D fans. Some are not. But I'm curious, what weapon did you decide to go with your first time playing, the first time you rolled up a character? Oh, I went with uh, a katana, of course. Uh, really? Samurai sword. Yeah. yeah. This is one of the beautiful things about D&D is that they meticulously researched weapons from throughout history mm-hmm. so they could insert them into this game full of elves and goblins. But you learn about things like katanas and falchions and glaives and all these. I, I have all this weird, useless knowledge about melee weapons from throughout <laughs> history. Uh, yeah, katanas are fascinating. Yeah, I've, I mean, it was the sword to pick. And, uh, and, and to your point, the fantasy world of Dungeons and Dragons especially is the, an, is an unreal history that is, uh, that is forged out of, uh, out of many a detail from our actual history. Right. Ends up taking on new shape and new form. Yeah, like your halfling thief can have a katana and that's not like cultural appropriation or anything, which we're going to talk about in a future <laughs> episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or is it? I don't know. It the, might the, be. We'll, we'll have to get into that. Yeah, spoilers for the next episode. <laughs> but be that as it may, uh, yes, the katana, the, the samurai sword, definitely a sexy, sexy weapon. Yeah. Uh, any, any child, any adult. Uh, can tell you that that this is a this is a really cool sword uh, to look at to wield in fantasy battle and I mean it's all over our media right totally I mean, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles yeah te- I forget which one had the katana Leonardo Leonardo did yeah he was always the one you wanted to Leonardo does swords I think is <laughs> is the the, the riff yeah. <laughs> oh, and then of course, uh, the Highlander movies, uh, Connor McCloud fought right. with this, uh, ivory, um, hilted, uh, katana. Even though he's this Scottish, maybe alien immortal. Well, but see, he got that sword from an ancient Scottish Egyptian played by, <laughs> with a Spanish name played That's by Sean right. Connery. Yeah. So, uh, it, so it gets a little complicated with immortals, but, uh, but clearly, like, the mystique of the sword was, was, was presented in that film. Yeah, I've been really interested in just samurai fiction in general lately, and so the katana has been on my mind, which is why I asked you if we could do an episode on this. I'm working on a project that is going to incorporate elements of samurai, you know, lore, like armor and and clothing and Mm -hmm. weapons, of course, and, and their ethos. So I've been catching up on all the samurai fiction and reading a ton of Lone Wolf and Cub. You know that manga? I'm familiar with it. I've never read it, though. It's it's about this father and son. The son's like three years old as they journey through a historical Japan, and he's this exiled ronin. Uh, oh. It's pretty fascinating. And then, of course, I watched a ton of Akira Kurosawa's movies, the the big ones being Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, and uh, Yojimbo. Those are all starring Toshiro Mifune as uh, the 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 title samurai usually in most of those cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course there's Jim Jarmusch's ghost dog, the way of the samurai. Uh, you remember that movie from the nineties? I never saw it, but it's the, the Forrest Whitaker samurai movie. Yep. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, the other one that I've seen recently that I like a lot, uh, surprising was that Takashi Miche, uh, uh, movie 13 Assassins. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's pretty good. I, I haven't watched uh, any of his films recently. Uh, I'm not usually a big fan of his work, Mm -hmm. but this is a great samurai movie, and it definitely shows the uh, power of the katana. There's lots of limbs flying around. And and I assume it's suitably weird uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like, uh, especially like when you think of like seven samurai and 13 assassins, like next to one another, mm-hmm. and like there's probably like 50 years in between the two of them. <laughs> it is significantly weirder. Well, you know, I don't think I've really enjoyed any samurai fiction recently, unless you, of course, count the American samurai in Samurai Cop uh, starring Robert Zadar. Yeah, I mean, his katana must have been made in the ancient tradition, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I remember that movie vaguely. That not that tied in with another series of movies? Is it the uh, American Ninja movies? I don't know that it's directly tied in with those, but it's in the same, <laughs> the same spirit. Okay. Yeah. The same, uh, you know, culturally, uh, uh slightly insensitive. <laughs> right. Um, but, but I do, I also remember uh, reading James Clavell's Shogun, uh, back in middle school. This was a 1975 novel about, uh, you know, you know intrigue between, uh, uh, between samurai and you had this, this Western character in the midst of it, you know, this outsider. Okay. Um, I've never heard of this. It is a really long novel. Yeah. Uh, I, the main thing I remember about it, aside from various details of sword play and, uh, and, and a few elements that were perhaps uh, a little too mature for, for me as a middle school reader. Uh, I do remember that it was, it was so thick that I brought it to scout camp with me. Uh-huh. And then it got damp because it rained. Yeah. And so the spine remained the same size, but the bulk of the paperback swelled up to like three times the size of the spine. Yeah. 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 I so totally remember books looking. doing that. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Now, when I got older, I did get into Kurosawa films for a while, and I, I think I just mainlined a bunch of Kurosawa films. Yeah. And today, the the really the only one that stands out to me is Throne of Blood. Yeah, it's great. Throne of Blood mm-hmm. is the um their version of Macbeth, basically, yeah. right? They In take brilliant that. black and white. Yeah, yeah, it's creepy too, like mm-hmm. the the way the witches are done and everything. Yeah, that's a great film. Yeah, one of my favorite Macbeth adaptations, and probably the best death by arrow scene. Uh, ever in a film. So, spoilers for Macbeth. So, yeah, we've got plenty of samurai fiction to go around, and we're not even, like, going through and listing, like, there's, I mean, if you look at samurai fiction list on Google, there's just, like, hundreds of movies that have been made. And, uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned this on the show before. I grew up in Singapore, and so mm-hmm. I ended up watching a lot of wuxia movies growing up, too. And they weren't necessarily using katanas in all of those movies, but, like, that same kind of uh asian sword play mysticism it, it worked its way into those films in the w- same way that they do sort of in kurosawa but kurosawa is not necessarily other than like throne of blood there isn't like magic right um but yeah so it's just always been something that's on my mind and then i started looking into this and i found out holy cow these swords are apparently like a marvel of engineering even by today's standards and they're they're relatively complex in terms of how they were made and incredibly expensive. Oh, Kill Bill. Uh, we've seen that obviously. That's mm-hmm. probably the, the film that most people would know Katana's from because there's the whole long scene where the Katana's being made for her by oh, this yes. very like specific, uh, accomplished swordsmith. Uh, and that was the one that really brought to my mind like, oh, there is, there's an art to this, right? It's not like they're just like cranking these things out of a forge. Now, one other point about uh, the samurai before we we, we get in more, into more detail here. I, I think it's also worth pointing out that even if you're not dealing with actual samurai lacquered armor and uh, and samurai swords, the the spirit of the samurai casts a long shadow over uh, the, the history and the pop culture of Japan. So even in things like uh, uh, you know various science fiction and anime yeah. uh, uh, franchises, and and even in uh, for instance uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling. 
uh, of which I am I am a fan. You see the the Bushido code, the the, the way of the samurai right. reflected in the way some of these characters are presented to you. Yeah, there is like a very strong association with that. Uh, I don't know if lifestyle is even the right word, but like quality of character mm-hmm. uh, and these weapons actually. Is that, I would say a distinctive warrior ethos. Yeah, yeah, very much so. That's one of the things that I love about Lone Wolf and Cub is that it's meticulously researched and. The, the lead character obviously follows that ethos very closely and constantly talks about it as you mm-hmm. do in manga. Like he's always b- telling his opponents, you know, beforehand, like, this is why I'm about to cut you in half because my specific code of honor, uh, makes it so I have to do this because you, you're a dishonorable cur. Well, it, I think the, the great thing about the, the katana is that it is a perfect extension of the samurai and, and the, the cultural, uh, qualities that go into that. Yeah. Uh, so uh I, I guess we should go ahead and get into it a little bit. I, I feel like everyone knows on some level what the samurai were. Yeah. But we probably need to just unwrap it uh, a bit as well here. Right. So as I was mentioning earlier, these are not just like your everyday warriors, right? It's not like every warrior in Japan was a samurai. They were expected to have personal characteristics and attitudes that were different from those of the ordinary soldier. And that's why they were given the responsibility of wielding these specific weapons because they were considered honorable and trustworthy just like the sword was because it was so uh, meticulously made. And so then you get this, uh, what's referred to as the lifestyle of kendo. We're not going to go way into this uh, in this episode, but that's basically what's referred to as the way of the sword. And that subsequently developed around these weapons. It was a a culture essentially Mm -hmm. based on how amazing these weapons were, not just in combat, but just as like uh, artistic artifacts. Yeah. So the katana itself, it was invented a millennium ago. That's crazy to think about. And it is basically, if you've never seen one before, it's it's this famous curved sword that samurai wielded. Uh, it's still today marveled for its aesthetic construction and skillful engineering. In fact, we were just talking about this before we went live on the mic that uh, if you go to most comic book conventions or like the the local pop culture convention for us is Dragon Con, mm-hmm. on the floor there is usually a weapons dealer uh, and you can buy katanas. Uh, they, they have lots of them. I mean, they usually have like swords that are like such and such person's sword from such and such movie, right? Like Aragorn's sword or, or Frodo's sword or something like that. <laughs> um, but you can just buy katanas too. And they're like a couple hundred bucks, I think. I have to say, I always enjoy uh, looking at uh, displays for that kind of stuff to see yeah. what is the most redonkulous blade that is that is available yeah. for purchase. You know, the, the like the least... Uh, uh, realistic, uh, you know, most ridiculously designed weapon. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is like, I, I'm not entirely sure unless you're like a really big fan of the aesthetics and ethos of samurai mm-hmm. lifestyle, uh, why you buy a katana and like put it on the wall in your living room. Although like I've heard of people who have those like actually using them in self-defense, like if somebody breaks into their house. But again, I don't think those swords are made for fighting. Like I think they're, the metal's probably going to break because they're not made in the fashion that these katanas were made in. Yeah. Now, I, I do want to drive a couple of facts home for here for everybody. So when we're talking about the invention of the katana sword, the development of the katana sword, there's no Joe Katana that invented 
the blade. No, like this is an this is an evolution of a tool, a tool that was uh, that was that was created uh, to uh, to fulfill a particular purpose, but then takes on additional uh, sort of cultural resonance as well. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. I can't think of a single artifact in our modern culture that has this much reverence attached to it, right? In that, like, it's a thing that took, like, I mean, we'll go through this, but it took, like, something like 16 people to make over the course of, like, months. Yeah. And uh, then you, you you know, give it to this one person to wield, and they're buried with it. There's a lot of personal attachment to it. I can't think of anything. I mean, like, everything we have is pretty much disposable, right? Like, your car, Mm -hmm. your phone, all that stuff. It's not like it's made to last for your entire lifetime and be made of, like, the best metals that are possibly available. Yeah, this was a, this was a finely crafted item that was, that was, that was built to, to last. Now, at the same time, I do want to stress that there was nothing magical. Like, tr- there wasn't anything truly magical about the samurai sword. These were tools. Yeah. And like. These aren't katanas plus two. Right. Yeah, <laughs> there's no magical bonus. Are they Vorpal? No, no, that, for Vorpal, that, that's even, even rare. <laughs> but, but as tools, they were items that were, that were made, uh, with various physical restraints in uh, in place, yeah, and it was certain compromises in place. So these were these were blades that uh, that could be dulled, that could be uh, uh, damaged or destroyed. Uh, you know, the, generally the blade itself would last longer than the hilt. A hilt might be replaced, right. uh, etc. But it is, as phenomenal as these were, I, we we don't want to fall into the trap of of uh, of thinking them as something uh, supernatural. You know, yeah, definitely. Um, but I think that where that sort of supernatural idea comes from is that historical adherence to the idea of it being so important oh, to yeah. a particular lifestyle. So the sword itself was actually considered a crucial part of a samurai's life. In fact, when they were born, a sword was brought into the bedchamber during delivery. And when they died, their sword was placed by their side. The sword was basically said to be akin to their soul. So they really thought of it in, in that higher regard. I don't, I don't think you would say today, like, my cell phone is my soul or my, uh, my, my Toyota is my soul. Well, both well, your Kia soul. I, I think one might not say those things, but I feel like to some, some people might have. Yeah. That. I think the, those statements are true for some individuals. That's true. Yeah. There's a certain amount of marketing mm-hmm. around that. Uh, I, just before I came in here, I was reviewing one of our YouTube videos in the commercial that played before it was for Dodge cars and it was Vin Diesel driving a Dodge car around and basically being like, if you drive one of these, you will be as cool as my characters in Fast and the Furious. <laughs> uh, and you will belong to my muscle family. Oh God! Did I, I saw a trailer for one of those films, and he referred to it as like the Order of the Muscle. Is that right? Is it or that, that's the commercial? The, that is that's oh, the wow. commercial I just saw. Yeah, it's like it's a sacred, uh, uh, you know, society. That like it's all like you have the, to the do Knights is Templar. drop some close to twenty thousand dollars on a challenger. <laughs> yeah, and you join the family. Uh, but the samurai you couldn't just buy your way into. So they wielded two swords and together these were referred to as the Daisho. Dai means large and represented the single edged katana and its small companion was the wakazashi. And these were used in close combat, usually for beheading, uh, usually like if you had an honored opponent and you, you had killed them already and you wanted to take their head. Uh, or for disemboweling yourself during the act of seppuku. Uh, so sometimes they use ritual daggers instead, but this was really what the wakazashi was for. And uh, another samurai would usually stand by to behead the victim so their death would be quick. This is something that uh, Takashi Miike is fascinated with in that 13 Assassins movie. Yeah, this was the, the uh, seppuku, the, the ritualized um, 
honorable suicide. Right. And, uh, yeah, I remember that being a, a, a major feature in, uh, James Clavell's Shogun as well. Right. Yeah. There is a certain Western fascination with mm-hmm. that, right? Uh, the katana itself was usually 30 to 33 inches long while the wakazashi was 18 to 20 inches long. Now here's the thing. We're going to go real deep into the metallurgy of this in a second, but just to sort of briefly tell you about this, the katana had to be forged so that it had both a sharp edge and it would not break during a duel. So if it was too hard, the sword itself would be brittle, but if it was too soft, the sword wouldn't take on the keen edge that it had. Uh, so for instance, like if you hit something with it and a crack was introduced to the blade, as would inevitably happen in battle when you're, you know, hitting other swords, uh, armor, all kinds of things, mm-hmm. it would run all the way through the blade. But instead of the, the way that they constructed these, it just stopped at the core and they could sort of repair the, the crack. Uh, around the core. Now, windshields today are actually made with a similar principle. They've got these two layers to them so that the first layer cracks when like a rock hits your, your windshield on the highway. Uh, but then it's stopped by the plastic interior. So that's why you see that sort of spider web. Oh, effect. yes. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to roll through the metallurgical details of the samurai sword. All right. We've returned. So the katanas had to be made of this really, really well put together steel. It was the purest of steels and it was called tamahagane or jewel steel by the Japanese. Now the methodology for putting this together was basically you had to make the sword's core with the soft metal that I was speaking of earlier that wouldn't break. Then you would cover it with harder metals. But these were repeatedly folded and hammered over and over again until there were literally millions of these layers laminated together. Constructing a sword took three days and three nights. When they say that, they're just referring to the metal part, not the, not the other aspects. We'll, we'll walk through that shortly. But smelters basically, to put together a sword, they would shovel 25 tons of iron-bearing river sand and charcoal into a rectangular clay furnace that was called the Tatara. And the charcoal was important in this process because it fueled the furnace up to 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And this was important because it reduced that iron ore down to steel and would eventually yield that jewel steel that we were talking about, right? Uh, do you remember Princess Mononoke? Oh, yes, of course. So I had forgotten this, but apparently the plot of Princess Mononoke is that the humans are cutting down the trees in the forest. The whole reason why is because they're fueling these furnaces specifically so they can make more weapons. Ah, okay. So this was like a major plot point of that film. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that one all the way through because the, um, uh, the boy is not yet ready for the, yeah. the more dramatic Miyazaki films. Yeah, that's definitely one of the more intense ones. So this steel, while it's inside the oven, it was never allowed to reach a molten state. And the reason why was so that the carbon that was mixed into the steel would vary throughout it somewhere between 0.5% and 1.5% of its properties. The higher the carbon, the harder the steel. So they had to mix the two types. You've got the high carbon for this hard razor edge, and you've got the low carbon for the shock-absorbent core. Now, on the third night, they would actually break open the clay furnace and they'd expose this steel. The pieces that broke apart the easiest helped them to discern what the carbon content was, right? They didn't have, like, uh, microscopes to sit there and look at the ore and figure out, you know, Mm -hmm. how much carbon was in each one. They literally had to do it by, well, not by hand, but they used tongs and stuff. 
Then the swordsmith would take this and they would heat it and hammer and fold it repeatedly over and over again. And the reason why was this would combine the iron and the carbon while drawing out any of the undissolved impurities. And these were referred to as as slag, uh, which I like. I think slag is like a good like that sounds like a good like like dirty name to call somebody slag. Um, if other elements besides iron and carbon remained though, this, this would weaken the metal. So you had to get that slag out of there. The smiths would judge how much carbon they had left over in this by how much it yielded to them pounding on it over and over again with their hammers. So, uh, and in fact, one of the ways they, if they, if they found that it was too low in carbon, they would actually add it back into the mix by exposing the metal to ash from rice straw. So it's really interesting. Like, can you imagine the, like, years and years of smithing and learning all of these little techniques? And they, they weren't thinking in terms of chemistry. They weren't thinking, like, okay, so the molecular bonds of carbon and iron are going to produce such and such effect, right? They're just like, I know that if I hit it this many times, it'll get rid of this stuff. And if I add rice straw, it'll put it back in. And so the doubling of these layers actually increased every time the metal was folded, right? And so you go two, and then you multiply that, then you get four, and so on and so on, until it results in a final count of four million layers. Can you imagine these wow. guys just sitting here and hammering this stuff over and over again? So you, you start to see like the value of these swords because they're just really being worked on in this artisanal fashion for days. Now, once the slag is removed... The smith would heat the high carbon steel that was left into a U-shaped channel. Then they would hammer the low carbon steel that was left, and they'd fit that snugly into the channel so that the hard steel formed that outer shell while the tough steel served the core. The smith would then coat the sword in this thick, insulating mixture of clay and charcoal powder. And what they would do is they would... They would put different consistencies of this clay around the sword. So, for instance, the front edge would be lightly coated while the rest would be covered. And this would protect the blade during further heating and give it that kind of signature wavy design that you see in the metal, you know, like the way it reflects. Mm -hmm. Now, after coating, the blade was heated just below 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And if it got any hotter... Well, that was bad, too, because it would actually make it crack afterwards. So swordsmiths, they were so concerned with the quality of these artifacts that they were worried about even their sweat touching the metal. So they would not touch it with their hands. Like, even obviously, you wouldn't touch, like, a super hot burning sword coming out of a fire, but... But like at the various stages in between, they didn't use their hands at all. They made sure that, I mean, they're standing over a hot fire for days at a time. They're making sure that no sweat is dropping down on this because they didn't want it to somehow interfere with this, you know, unknown chemical concoction they were working with. Okay, so then you get to the stage where the smith pulls this out of the fire and plunges it into water for this really rapid cooling process that's called Quenching. This made me think of uh, Highlander as well. This Sounds is a like very cinematic of... moment. You yeah. see this in a lot of uh, sword movies. Totally, yeah. Now, because of the distribution of carbon, there's a difference in the degree and speed at which the steel along the blade contracts when it's cooled. And this causes it to bend, which creates that distinctive curve of the katana. Now, as many as one in three of the swords that they were constructing 
were lost during the stage. So we always see this in movies, right? They put it in the water, steam, looks mm-hmm. super cool. They pull it out. It's the best sword ever, right? Yeah, ready to go. Yeah. But like one in three times, they'd pull it out and the sword would like crack and fall apart or something like that after days of hammering this thing millions of times. So the quenching actually allowed the clay coating on the cutting blade to cool quickly. And this formed something that's called martensite, which is a type of iron that has assumed a ferretic crystalline structure with enclosed carbon atoms. Now, these atoms are what gives that material its hard quality. So that the keen edge that has its hard quality is the martensite. The slower cooling time of the core actually created a coarse grain structure that was both soft and flexible. So this is why these curved swords actually they were lowered horizontally into the water. They weren't just like you see it sometimes in the films, like they'll hold it by the the hilt as if the hilt is already on it. Right. Yeah. And they'll just like dip it into the water. And mm-hmm. be, ah, and that's not how they did it at all. They would lower them down horizontally. So certain parts were cooled down first, uh, which would, you know, obviously change the composition of the metal. All right. Then you've got this blade. It's pretty cool. It's made of this amazing composition of uh, different densities of metal. Then you polish it for two weeks by grinding and polishing it with these stones that are called water stones. And they were typically composed of a hard silicate bunch of particles that were suspended in clay. The clay, as you're, you know, you're, you're rubbing it on these blades wears down over time and that reveals even more silicate particles. So this essentially makes the stone's polishing quality improve through its life as the finer silicate particles come out and they make, uh, they basically make it so that there's less steel removed while you're polishing it. So the stones themselves, like we're not even talking about the sword yet. These little stones were worth more than a thousand dollars each and were passed down through generations of families. So there's just, you know, like all these aspects of the sword making really had this, um, this high quality reverence to them. Now, other methods of polishing the swords included fine stone powder or powdered steel or uh, something called forge cinder. And they would also use wet stones like the same way uh, we're used to seeing like medieval swords made or sharpened. But it was preferred to polish the swords in the winter, actually, instead of the summer. And the reason why was because they thought summer was generally more wet and would subsequently bring rust to the blade. Now, I, I don't know if there's actually any chemical logic to that, you know, in terms of like how they're making these swords. But so you would find that most of these katanas would be made in the wintertime. Yeah, it seems as you're developing your your sword making technique, you know, over over generations, like you're going to have some uh, some some essentially some science is going to work its way in there. But then you also right. uh, there's the potential for just sort of superstition to become uh, wrapped up in it as well. Yeah, I imagine that there's probably like an entire culture of superstitious mysticism that has maybe been lost to history, actually. Right. Because mm-hmm. most of the the research that I was looking at for this was putting it in present day tense of here's how we understand chemistry. Here's how these things were made. They weren't. Uh, looking at it from the perspective of the swordsmiths. Right. So the final stage is when the metal workers add uh, a decorated guard of iron or other metals at the sword's hilt. This is, you know, the guard for if your sword basically comes in contact with another one. It, it's kind of a, what's his name? Uh, Kylo Ren. He's got <laughs> his, uh, he's got his lightsaber guard, right? So it's this, this little circular iron thing that goes at the hilt end there. 
And the carpenters would fit the entire sword with a lacquered wooden scabbard, and that was decorated with adornments. And then the handle would be fashioned out of gold, exotic leather, and stones. The swordsmith then would get the blade returned to him after the carpenters did this work, and he would review his work, and it actually took 15 people nearly six months to create a single sword. Now, I don't imagine they were working for six months straight. Obviously, like, there were, there's sort of an assembly line fashion yeah. this, right? But um, it just goes to show you, like, how much went into the construction of these devices. Yeah, so, it's a finely crafted item. I mean, you, in a way, you'd be you'd be privileged to to die. Uh, yeah, at the, on the, right. The it makes you kind of go, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind that. Uh, so they were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, especially nowadays. They're worth that much to modern art collectors. Sometimes the smiths would put their names on this metal, uh, but others actually had like kind of a policy where they were like, oh, I'm not going to put my name on there. Anybody who actually understands swords is going to recognize just by looking at it that this is my work, that the, the quality here comes from my particular style of smithing. Now, all kinds of other things were written on these swords. They would put poems on them, sayings, the owner's names, all, anything you can think of. And there's a couple things that should be noted about the blades in terms of quality. First of all, the more strongly the whitish color of the hardened blade is, the more strongly that contrasts with the blue tinge of the rest of the blade, the better the metal and its forging were considered. So you could kind of look at it same way sort of like a jeweler looks at uh, at stuff today, right? I, I, I imagine they had like something kind of like a loop maybe for, for or a magnifying glass that they would look at uh, this metal with. There's also another thing that's a sign of poor forging, and that was if there was a weak glimmer that ran parallel to the hardened edge inside the darker metal. So this is the kind of thing that, like, I mean, you and I would have no idea of, but, like, if you're next time you're at your uh, old convention there and there's somebody selling these katanas, ask to look and say, uh, well, look, that glimmer just doesn't run right with the, the hardened edge. I, I'm not going to pay for this. <laughs> Sorry, Deadpool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What kind of katana is Deadpool wielding? <laughs> yeah. I, I wish I had uh, remembered him earlier, but that's, I think that's most of the katanas at a, at a sci-fi oh, convention. These yeah. Days, right? Well, actually, and you know, um, this is, this is not funny, but, uh, there was a recent incident in Phoenix at a comic book convention in which a guy showed up with a bunch of guns. Uh, in order to shoot police officers. And luckily he was, uh, somebody saw him posting about this on Facebook ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And so the security was able to arrest him. Since then, at least the conventions that I've attended, like I, I just, uh, set up and tabled at one two weeks ago, mm-hmm. uh, there's police presence now on the floor. And when you go through the police, uh, check all of the cosplay weapons and they put like a little, they, they, sometimes they call it peace bonding, but it's like a, a little tag basically that goes around your sword or your, your toy gun or whatever that indicates like this isn't real. You're not going to hurt anybody. Oh, well, that's this. good. Yeah. So Deadpool's, all the Deadpool's I saw had these little tags. Yeah. To so let everybody know that this is a harmless. plastic sword. Yeah. 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 Cool. Now, in terms of who made the swords, well, they were essentially referred to as swordsmiths. But the most famous of which of these was a guy named, and I, I hope I'm getting this right, Masamune, I believe is, is his name. Uh, and this is, this is a name that's like sort of legendary in, in samurai fiction now too. Like they yeah. were, they've, I've actually heard like Masamune sword used before in comics and stuff like that is like, this was forged by the greatest of swordsmiths. And so, you know, 
it's it's a vorpal blade basically it's, well, it's magical. we mentioned the highlander sword uh, in the highlander lore it is supposed to have been uh, forged by uh, masamune oh it is yeah, in, okay. uh, in 593 bce oh perfect <laughs> okay i didn't know that yeah there you go so he just made all these swords that all these you know essentially superheroes now mm-hmm. <laughs> wield 593 bce is the highlander date though don't uh yeah, don't, I, don't let that get the, trapped in here amidst the, the actual fight. Well, that's actually interesting because it's not actually known when this guy lived. Okay. Um, so he reached this sort of legendary status in swordsmithing lore, but nobody can actually pin down the date that he lived and when he was constructing mm, these okay. supposed swords. Um, and you know, basically the way that they would make them, the swordsmiths, like I said, this wasn't just like a, a blacksmithing job. This, was cultural and so they would pray they would fast and they would even purify themselves in cold water first before they would start the smithing i wonder actually i didn't see this in the notes but i wonder if the purification in cold water had to do with the sweat thing huh maybe so. like you douse yourself in cold water uh to sort of try to keep yourself from sweating for a certain amount of time i don't know huh yeah, and I wonder too about the the the, the Shinto connections here. You know, right, you're, you're making this, you're forging this blade out of the elements of the natural world, and there are all of these. Uh, uh, and every substance has its own uh, sort of spiritual energy. Exactly. So you're manipulating those energies to create this this holy weapon. And I would imagine that this uh, this sword in particular would have a lot of spiritual energy. But then, so you get these things, you make it. It takes six months. How do you then? test it right it's not like you just hand over this untested blade to a samurai oh right, here you go bet your life on it yeah no, no. and there's real interesting stories you know sort of folk tales about masamune and other swordsmiths sort of battling over who had the best swords and they would do stuff like dip their sword into a river and like a fish would swim through it and get cut in <laughs> half and then masamune's swords didn't cut the fish in half because like it was a it wasn't an evil sword. It had like peaceful intentions. And so the fish would swim around it, like stuff like that. Right. Maybe hold it up and you, you speak across it and uh, they and only hear the half words, words are cut in yeah. half. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we, we're going to get into ways to test a samurai sword and the traditional way of testing a samurai sword, samurai sword right after this break. All right. We're back. So, uh, so yeah. How do you, how do you test drive a katana? Well, so I would imagine that, you know, you have to make sure that it cuts through flesh. You're not yes. going to just like bang it against, uh, iron. Although some of the things that I read were that they would essentially like to, to show the quality of it, they would see how deep it would go into certain kinds of metals, usually brass, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I ran across a few of those, those tests as well, but those are kind of, uh, dangerous because you run the risk of, of damaging the blade. Exactly. Yeah. And ultimately it is a, a an item designed uh and, and and honed to cut through human tissue so they what they like go chase squirrels around <laughs> uh, it's a little grizzlier than that really yeah so uh i looked at a few different sources on this the first one i i, I ran across uh, was uh, one by uh, one benjamin smith lyman this was from the journal of the franklin institute in 1896 titled metallurgical and other features of japanese swords Given the date on this, given the Western author, I was a little skeptical at first, uh, but this is what he said. The usual Japanese tests of a sword are on the human body, on corpses of beheaded convicts, or in the beheading, or by ruffians, on beggars and peaceable wayfarers, or even a dog. Ugh. Yeah, I read this same article and when I hit the dog part. Weirdly, I was like, yeah, ruffians, fine. <laughs> but the dog? Come on. <laughs> There's actually this uh, kind of infamous lone wolf and cub story about the, the abuse of a dog by 
um, people testing out bow, uh, bows, I think they're like trying to make sure that their bows are gauged the right way. So they tie a dog to like a maypole mm-hmm. and it runs around in a circle and they have to try to shoot it. And it's, it's awful, you yeah. know, but it's, you know, supposed to be historically accurate. Well, you know, when I first started uh, encountering uh, this material about the, the testing of the blade, uh, you know, as, as a Westerner, uh, especially, you know, as, as one who, who comes across uh, Western accounts of this sort of thing, uh, pretty frequently, you know, I, I was naturally a, a little bit skeptical because it sounds like a bit of classic Orientalism, right? Doesn't it? An, yeah. an exotic and barbaric practice of a people from a distant land. So I was, I was in, inclined to think, well, maybe that's, that's not quite what's going on. Yeah. But the act did exist and the act was known as Tamishi Giri. And that literally means to test the cutting ability of a blade. And in modern martial art jargon, uh, the term often refers to a training method in which the user slashes uh, conventional mediums, you know, like, okay. a, like a dummy or a piece of... Uh, like ballistic wood. gel. Yeah, or I guess one of those... <laughs> it's like, like Mythbusters, yeah. right? Yeah, I guess you could also slash one of those like karate dudes. You know, they always have that same face, the big rubber karate dudes. I've never, I never practiced karate. What are you talking about? These are like... Uh, oh, you like, go to a dojo and they, they all have the same weird face and they're made out of pink plastic or something no i've never oh wow yeah. okay so you but you're trying the sword out on this plastic well i don't know if you you probably wouldn't want to actually slash one of those dojo guys because they look expensive they're mainly for punching probably yeah they probably cost more than, yeah than a dog but you would use a, <laughs> nowadays you would use a stand-in for a human body right but at the at the time yeah you would use an actual cadaver and uh i think it's it's worth taking a step back and saying this is Quite practical, right? Mm. Because you're crafting a precision weapon with an express purpose in mind, the slashing and dismemberment of human bodies. So why wouldn't you test these on the thing itself? Because you're, you, a guy's going to go into battle with this thing, and, uh, and his, his life is going to be on the line, and he needs to effectively end the lives uh, or at least injure other uh, individuals in order to carry out his job. Yeah, this, I think, too, probably shows you how that culture was hierarchical and mm-hmm. elitist in a way in that like the people who wielded these weapons literally thought that they were better than other people. Oh, yeah. And so their lives were subsequently worth more. But just the, 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 the idea of using a cadaver as a test. I mean, we can look to examples in our own culture where things of this nature are carried out. Uh, forensic scientists today will study the effects of decomposition on actual corpses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. automotive industry has even depended on the use of cadavers to make our cars safer. And the U.S. military has used cadavers to test everything from landmines and sniper rifles to body armor. So it's, it's not just this, uh, you know, archaic, uh, curio from the past right it, killing people is a serious business and and in order to uh, to effectively carry out that business uh we've often turned to the use of cadavers yeah luckily we've uh, i guess graduated morally to the point where we're not putting like death row inmates mm-hmm. in cars and then driving them into walls right right <laughs> yeah so, so so far so <laughs> right we haven't hit the running man yet yeah and as Kazuhiro Sakai points out in his uh, 2010 paper, uh, in which he, uh, he he looks at skeletal remains that show signs of uh, Tamishigiri, uh, he says that the uh, Tokugawa shogunate had several execution methods. So there was decapitation with a sword, there was crucifixion, there was burning, and there was also sawing or okubo. Oh. 
And then there was also uh, Tamishi Giri, which was also like written into the uh, uh, into the laws of the day. And this mm. was carried out as part of a Shize execution. This was reserved for male felons who were not protected by either samurai or a clerical status. Okay. And the pr- practice survived till the beginning of the Meiji period in 1868. Wow, that's intense. Yeah. yeah. So the way this would take place is you, you had the already decapitated corpse. And it was placed on elevated soil with its limbs held, uh, extended for testing by uh, another individual. Then the performer of the Tamishigiri would cut at fixed points on the body. And sometimes you'd have two or more bodies piled on elevated soil so as to mark how many bodies could be cut through with a single uh, blow of the sword. Okay. Now, depending on the blade, the number might range between uh, two and even six bodies. Holy cow. I can't even imagine a scenario. I just watched that dumb new Transformers movie, and Optimus (laughs) Prime beheads like five robots at the same time. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I can't imagine a scenario where uh, you're going to be cutting six people simultaneously. So I guess it's not as much about the like the practical battlefield application of this. So you wouldn't necessarily be cutting through right. uh, two samurai, uh, enemy samurai at once, but it's a, a testament to the blade's uh, ability. So it's like bragging rights, basically. Yeah. Because you could say, like, this, you could put a little six on the blade and well, say, that, like, it can cut through six people. That's exactly what happened. Oh, okay. So the blade's sharpness rating was recorded in the sodomy, which is, uh, which was, uh, inscribed on the tang of the blade. The tang is the portion, uh, of the blade itself that's fixed in the hilt. Right. So yeah. This would that's be, where most of the writing would be. So you wouldn't actually see it if the hilt was attached. Yeah. It, this is, this made me think about underwear a lot. Because this is very much like the tag of the underwear that is tucked away uh, so that, you know, I guess if you're just walking around in your underwear, nobody can see the tag, but it's there. And uh, and it's also kind of like the inspected by tag that you encounter with garments, right? MeUndies and uh, Mac Weldon should incorporate that into their underwear. <laughs> so you've got like a how many bodies this underwear can cut through tag. On it. <laughs> yeah, so this would be chiseled or engraved in gold. And uh, it featured the name of the tester, the cutting positions of the bodies, and the number of bodies that it could that could be cut simultaneously. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's very much like a bloody version of the inspected by tag and a, a pair of underwear. It's very D and D that yeah. like system categorization of the weapons. So and the the other thing about this is there there is evidence to support all of this. The uh, aforementioned Sakai paper uh, examines Edo era skeletal remains, and he identified the unique wounds associated with the Tamishigiri practice. And interestingly enough, he also explains a couple of vertebra cuts uh, that are there that possibly occurred during the extraction of the kidney. Hmm. Uh, he says that uh, the Yamada family, quote, who monopolized Tamishigiri business during the 18th century, also made a medicine called Juntan from corpse kidneys. So, okay, so you get your corpse. Well, presumably, it gets its head cut off in an execution. Mm-hmm. Then you remove its kidney. Yeah, and then you put it out for this this cutting practice. Right. Yeah. And then afterwards, I'm ass- I'm assuming they're not buried. They must just like throw them to the wolves or something like they they've treated this corpse so poorly at this point. I doubt they're going to like put a headstone over it. Yeah, it's definitely a testament to um, uh, to the the, the societal um, uh, barriers uh, that were in place at the yeah. time, uh, because, again, this was not not everybody was going to end up being used to test samurai swords, only particular uh, male uh, felons uh, of, of, of the correct class. Right. Hmm. I'm I'm thinking about like if I had to be executed, if I would want to be executed this way, and I guess I 
Well, you would. Don't mind well, it's it. not so much the execution. This was. This is just. This is what's done to your body yeah. after you're dead. So yeah. it's really not that different from say, uh, you know, you you die you die by natural causes, then your body is used to test landmines for the U.S. military. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And in a way, you can think, hey, you got to be a part of the. Um, of the, of the creation of this fine blade, the rating of this blade. Exactly. So yeah. Maybe it's you know, maybe it's not a bad way. It couldn't to go. have been made without me <laughs> and my meat. So you, everyone out there might be wondering, well, is this is this legit? Could blades really cut through this much human meat? Well, I mean, on one hand, we we have the Sadame information on the blades themselves to to go by. We have skeletal remains to to look to to know this was actually a thing. Uh, the individuals who performed these tests were masters licensed by the government, so it couldn't be performed by just anyone. Okay. And, so uh, this was a career. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, this was also, uh, very much a value added thing. I was reading, uh, the Connoisseur's Book of Japanese Swords by, uh, Kokan, uh, Nakayama. And, uh, and he, he said, uh, the following. There is no doubt that, that Tamishi May attracted customers and could raise the price of a sword in much the same way that a title could, even during a time of lasting peace and low demands for swords. Huh, right. Because you're getting into the artistic value of Yeah. Them. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's not really the sort of thing we can really test for in modern times with an old blade, right? Mm. Now, various professional and, well, we, shall we say less than professional swordsmen have taken uh, katanas to, to uh, pig carcasses and other carcasses, often on YouTube, and uh, the results are pretty convincing. If, you must know about this, that one of Joe and my favorite things on the Internet, I believe it's the company is called Blue Steel. Oh, yeah? And they produce replicas of various uh, historical weapons, and their YouTube videos are literally these... These, these office looking guys with these weapons hacking away at like giant pieces of beef hanging from a hook <laughs> or like a, like a full pig. They'll hang like a full pig corpse and they'll come at it with like a battle axe or something oh. like that. And it is the craziest thing like to, to, to watch because they play like this generic metal music over it and just <laughs> showing these guys like just going to town on these animal corpses. But basically to be like, look at how cool our axes are. They sell katanas too. <laughs> yeah, I think I I may have seen, uh, I've seen videos of this nature. I don't know if they, it was Blue Steel. Because one of the groups that conducts these kind of tests is uh, Association for Renaissance Martial Arts or ARMA. And uh, I saw, a, I was looking at a straight dope uh, article uh, from uh, the last few years where they spoke to ARMA director John Clements. And he states that there have been, there have been plenty of such experiments, you know, with animal carcasses to prove that uh, to prove that yeah these these weapons were effective at body hacking uh, and that even fairly blunt blades can get the job done as long as the weapon has quote a hard and well-honed edge hitting forcefully with the correct geometry and energy okay yeah so th- this actually gets into like a good point that I'll bring up shortly about like the composition of the sword geometrically in terms of how much cutting power it has. Yeah, and then it, it also gets into the fact that you had to know how to use it. Yep. Uh, because if, even a finely tuned item like this, it's not uh, it's not a sentient Dungeons and Dragons sword. It's not going to go out there and hack for you. You have to be able to wield it. But uh, but one thing to, to keep in mind, and this is something that, uh, that John Clements pointed out, is that, yes, the average samurai was skilled with their blade, but only... Five percent of samurais were probably masters. Right. Which sounds appropriate. Like you wouldn't. I mean, mastery means you have a degree of skill with an item or practice that is beyond that of most practitioners. 
Yeah. I mean, I would think about it the same way, probably. Geez. And I don't want to insult anybody who's in the military, but I imagine that like there are certain, uh, People who are really good shots, right? Like mm-hmm. who are like the 5% top tier of being able to hit something, maybe usually snipers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's probably similar. I would guess so. Yeah. And, and then of course, in the modern military terms, of course, it's important to realize that you're going to have specialists and then you also, yeah. you also need a lot of generalists and specialists to know the areas to carry out the, uh, the overall goals of the combat. You know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Now, uh, Clements makes some other uh, solid points about the katana here that I want to share. He says that uh, a curved blade is mechanically superior to a straight one at delivering edge blows to produce injury. And due to its hardness, a single uh, curving edge of the katana is very good at penetrating even hard materials with straight-on strikes. So that's one of the things that's interesting is the the curvature is actually an effect of the engineering, mm-hmm. but it's also really useful in terms of the application of the weapon. Yeah, and he also points out that you could thrust, you, you can thrust with a katana, but it is really a dedicated slicer. So, yeah, to put it in Dungeons & Dragons terms, you can go for that piercing damage, but you really want that slashing damage. Yeah. And uh, and he also had a, a note uh, here about the durability of the katana versus the Western longsword. Uh, oh, the, yeah. I read a long article that I didn't include in our notes that was comparing the two and which one was better yeah, for that combat. Yeah, was, that was from Arma. That was by Clements. He did one comparing the longsword to the katana and another con- comparing the katana to the rapier. Okay. And uh, he said he, he makes a solid point. He says no sword is indestructible. They're all produced as perishable tools with a certain expected working lifetime. And there's also evidence uh, both the sword styles, be it a katana or a longsword, were made in versions intended for armored combat and versions intended for unarmored combat. Yeah, yeah. I think that you can see that with the katana construction, obviously, because mm-hmm. there were certain unarmored reasons why they would fight with them. Yeah, and this, and this last uh, point is probably, it might be an overstatement of the obvious, but the samurai sword was not the um, the only method of combat right. for the samurai. They depended on ranged weapons such as longbows and 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 later the Japanese matchlock gun. Uh, you know, they had pole weapons, so it was all part of a. Uh, while it was a, a singularly important weapon and certainly had extreme cultural importance, it was not the only tool of battle. Right. Yeah. My understanding, actually, from the research, I didn't include this in the notes, was that. Historically, samurai actually started off as archers, as, mm-hmm. as horse-mounted archers, and they would specialize in that. And then I think when the engineering of the katana came into play, that's when they sort of graduated into that proficiency. And then, like you say, when uh, gunpowder and the engineering of matchlock, probably not pistols. I don't know what those, how big those guns were, but uh, it was it was like a yeah match. It was like a long rifle. I yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. rifle. Yeah, then they started using those. So before we cut out here, I have to include this one study that I found. It was a lot of fun. It is a 1946 study that was commissioned by the U.S. Army. I don't know where they got the sword from, but essentially this uh, general sent this group of scientists a katana that they had, and they wanted it to have a metallurgical examination. I think the results are pretty fascinating in lieu of what we've talked about today in terms of how they're put together. Uh, essentially, they wanted to understand its metallurgical properties and how the variations in the sword fabrication from different eras produced different style blades. Now, this particular blade that they looked at, 
I'm immediately because of the date thinking that this must have come from somebody in World War II, right? Like either somebody who's stationed in Southeast mm-hmm. Asia or like um I'm reading it right now and there's like a the one of the characters father like brings back a katana with him from like a, a Japanese soldier he killed in combat or something like that. Uh-huh. Like I'm thinking it, it's some scenario like that, but I'm sure it could have totally been a peaceful method of acquiring this sword too, you know? Yeah. I, um, I actually grew up with a, a samurai sword in the house. Oh, because it was, um, uh, it was a, a family member on my dad's side had, uh, had acquired the item after the war. Yeah. And I think, I think he bought it. Okay. Um, in, in Japan, if I'm remembering the story correctly, but I would, I would often like take, it was an interesting weapon to, to take out and hold as a child yeah. because you could, I, I was, I didn't wave it around. Like I knew that this was a very dangerous item because you could, I, I don't know how sharp it actually was in comparison to, you know, like a well-maintained weapon. Right. But you could, you could look at it and you could imagine the damage that could be done with it and even, uh, imagine the damage that might have been done with it in the past. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, so this sword that they looked at in particular, my theory, and I'll see, let's see what you think afterwards is that this yeah. was probably produced to sell to people it or whether they were tourists or Japanese soldiers who just wanted like a, a representation to bring with them in, into battle. Mm-hmm. This doesn't sound like it was something that was meant to be used in combat. They found that this sword was made from extremely poor quality steel. And so this gives you a hint. It had 1.05% carbon. So earlier we said it was between 0.5 and 1.5% carbon was kind of your, your limited range. So sounds like this is right in the middle and yeah. it's considered poor. So they examined it both microscopically and macroscopically. And in addition, they performed tension tests on the core. They found that the, the core of this sword had a tensile strength of 190,000 PSI. Now the sword they examined, it had a cutting angle of 22 to 40 degrees, which I'm imagining is far more curved than what we usually think of as a katana. And it, they actually say that this gave it less cutting power than the reference literature that was available in 1946 because traditional katanas were supposed to have a 14 degree angle for the cutting edge. They also found that the steel that was in this, it had high sulfur and phosphorus content, which was indicative of a poor melting practice. So we go back to what we talked about earlier. This is the slag. They didn't work the slag out of this metal, and it was still in there. The hardness values of it, it actually indicated to them that the sword was air-cooled instead of water-cooled or quenched. Uh, and this also contributed to its poor quality. So all these things, I mean, you can make a katana, right? Right. Like, uh, through mass production, but they're not necessarily going to be these, these artistic artifacts that, uh, we've been discussing today. Now today, if you purchase the steel that, that jewel tamahagane steel I referred to earlier, it can cost 50 times more than ordinary steel, even when we're talking about like modern smithing methods. Huh. Now, I'm going to throw this down. This is a little bit of like Marxist theory here, but the samurai sword is this great example of Marx's uh, capitalist mode of production, that theory that it put to work, basically, because you've got this object that's used to be produced over a long period of time by experts, but now it's produced on a mass scale, right, for less cost and less quality. You can buy these katanas everywhere now. 
there's no way they're engineered to be as precise uh, as the originals were. Only these swordsmiths knew how to precisely build an object for the requirements that were necessary. And we can reproduce them using industrial techniques, but they, they don't have that artistic beauty to them. I think in a previous episode, you and I were talking about the idea of like an artistic object having an aura, right? Mm-hmm. And this seems to be sort of the same thing here is that, uh, these katanas that were really refined in the method that we talked about earlier had a, an aura to them that the mass produced ones don't. Well, and they're kind of, it seems like it's kind of like the modern samurai sword, uh, a samurai sword produced today is kind of like a, uh, a well-bred dog, you know? Yeah. Like it has, it may look great. It, it may, it may, you know, you can check off all the criteria, but it has no purpose. It's not yeah. just as the, you know, the, whatever the, the small legged dog is, uh, is not actually being used to hunt rats in a warehouse. The samurai sword, if it is not being used as a, as a weapon of, uh, an instrument of death, and dismemberment, then is it truly a samurai sword anymore? Uh, right. Of course, it's kind of a complicated question when you consider all the cultural uh, value that's placed on the item. But still, at the heart, you strip away all those layers of culture, you have a tool, and that tool has a purpose, and it 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 does not fulfill that purpose anymore. Well, in the last 300 years, it seems that the Japanese themselves understood this because they would recognize, not all Japanese, but obviously people who had a smithing background, mm-hmm. they would recognize when European metal was used instead of Japanese steel. And they referred to that and they would actually mark it. And the marker would say Southern Barbarians. On it. Huh. Um, now, the emperor banned samurai from wearing their swords in public in 1876. So that was essentially the beginning of the end of that warrior culture. So subsequently, we're now here almost 150 years later, you know, katanas are basically trinkets that are bought at, you know, conventions or, I don't know, I, I suppose you get them at like certain, not thrift stores, but you know what I mean? Like, like oddity shops. Yeah. I mean, it, well, there was the whole scene in, in Pulp Fiction, right? Oh, Doesn't yeah. that take place in uh, essentially a pawn shop? And, yeah. And Bruce Willis's character is kind of running wild with the katana at the end of it. They have that, uh, the TV show Atlanta has a scene like that as well, where they're in a pawn shop. And guys oh, like, yes, yes, they guys do. like, you should totally buy this sword. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it, it it's interesting. It, it, in many cases, the, the swords, uh, kind of become trinkets or in, in the higher levels, they become, you know, very important collectible items, museum pieces. And still the, the idea of the samurai continues to fascinate. It, can, it continues to cast this long shadow across Japanese culture as, you know, as well as, as various other fandoms. Like the, yeah. the idea, the, the archetype of the samurai is, um, you know, is, is, is pretty powerful. Definitely. And I imagine that there are people out there listening who know a lot more about this than we do. And I'd be curious to hear from you. Like, did we did we miss anything? I hope not. We did a lot of research for this episode. But is there something about these newer katanas that we don't know uh, in terms of like the smithing process and why they're they're subsequently worth less or uh, mm. made by southern barbarians. Well, and then of course we 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 didn't have time to go into much in the way of the martial art of using these swords. Right. Uh, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of information out there on that. And if you are a connoisseur of uh, of such uh, martial arts, uh, we'd love to hear from you because uh, perhaps uh, you have some some favorite details that you would like to share. 
Yeah, so if you want to get in touch with us about that, tell us your sword stories. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. We're all over social media. You can also find all of our social media accounts on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Hey, and also, if you listen to our podcast uh, via Apple Podcasts, uh, why don't you go by there? Why don't you leave us a nice review? Uh, that really helps us out, helps uh, helps uh, the algorithm, as they say, so that uh, uh, other folks can try out the show as well. And as always, if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way via email, simply email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.